Good morning. How is everybody today? Did you survive the graveyard shift last night? <laughs> it's kind of difficult, uh, you know, when you're from the Eastern time zone to have a meeting late at night. But I hope that uh, you weren't agreeing with me all during the presentation. Before we begin our study, we do want to pray, and so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we implore the Lord's presence. Our Father and our God, thank you for giving us life this day. Thank you, Father, for being a wonderful Father. Thank you because you've told us exactly what is happening and what will soon happen in this world. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. We thank you that we know that the final movements will be rapid ones, and we see this transpiring before our eyes. We ask that as we open your holy word this morning, your Holy Spirit will be with us through the ministry of your holy angels to open minds and hearts. And thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, because we come boldly to the throne of grace in the name of Jesus. Amen. In this series, we're studying about the four Elijahs that are mentioned in Scripture. The first Elijah is the historical Elijah, or the Old Testament Elijah. He is the root and foundation of the other Elijahs. The second Elijah is the one that I call the prophetic Elijah. And the prophetic Elijah can also be called the New Testament Elijah. It is John the Baptist, and this evening we will be studying about the prophetic Elijah. And then we have the ecclesiastical Elijah, which is what we studied last night, the church of Thyatira, the Elijah during the Dark Ages. And finally we have what I call the apocalyptic Elijah. That's the Elijah that will come to this world immediately before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now there's a governing principle that we need to keep in mind when we study these Elijah prophecies. And that principle is that the first two Elijahs are literal individuals and their enemies are literal individuals localized in the land of Israel. Whereas the last two Elijahs, the ecclesiastical Elijah and the apocalyptic Elijah are actually worldwide systems, worldwide movements that are symbolized by the literal individuals in the Elijah story. Now the Bible tells us that God promises to send Elijah immediately before the second coming. I'd like to read Malachi chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6 where we find this Elijah prophecy about the end time. It says there, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse so we are to expect an end time Elijah now as I mentioned in our first study Elijah never appears alone you can't say that Elijah comes at the end without also having the three enemies of Elijah along with him. 
because the entire story of the Old Testament and of the New Testament Elijah is repeated on a larger scale in the last two Elijahs and so when Elijah appears which he will before the second coming we must expect his three enemies to appear with him as well and we should also expect that the message of the end time Elijah will be like the message of the Elijah's of the Old Testament and the New Testament in other words the Old Testament and New Testament stories are the root and the New Testament stories that we find in the case of the church in the Middle Ages and the end time church must be global and based on the root prophecy of the Old Testament now let's review what we studied last evening in our first presentation let's review what we said about the ecclesiastical Elijah and I'm gonna go quickly you'll remember that in Revelation chapter 2 beginning with verse 18 Jezebel is mentioned now if Jezebel is mentioned immediately that should awaken in our minds the Elijah story and we should look for the protagonists that accompany Jezebel in the Old Testament story and so we find Jezebel this apostate church of the Middle Ages or of the Dark Ages fornicating with the kings of Europe beginning with the days of Constantine in Western Europe the church becomes linked with the political powers you're not only dealing with one king now in Israel it's much broader you're dealing with a religious apostate system symbolized by Jezebel that is fornicating with the kings in other words has illicit relationships with the state we also noticed in the story that daughters were born from this system and we know that in the 16th century daughters that share many of the beliefs and practices of this apostate religious system were born from her we also notice that uh, this system mixed paganism with Christianity just like Jezebel mixed God worship with Baal worship also we found that this Jezebel of the Middle Ages this apostate religious system actually embraced the worship on the day of the sun from paganism just like in the Old Testament story you have Jezebel imposing the worship of the sun god Baal we also notice that because of this apostasy no rain was to fall during the period of her dominion and of course rain represents doctrine if when there is rain there's true doctrine there's true teaching when there is no rain there's a scarcity of true doctrine this is exactly what happened during the 1260 years we also noticed that God gave this religious system time to repent but this system did not repent the period that God gave her to repent was time times and the dividing of time three and a half prophetic years just like in the Old Testament story we have three and a half literal years in the case of literal Elijah we also notice that uh, in the story that we find concerning the Middle Ages the faithful remnant had to flee to the wilderness and immediately we think of the Walden Seas and the Albigen Seas and all those who had to flee to the desolated places of the earth because they were being persecuted by this apostate religious system that had blended Christianity with paganism we notice also that 
Elijah was blamed for the calamities just like the Waldenses and the Albigenses were, were blamed because of all of the turmoil and the disease and all of the problems that existed in Western Europe. We also notice that spiritual Jezebel wanted to slay or wanted to kill these people who were followers of God. We notice that God prepared a place for those who were being persecuted and in this place God fed his people. So you have all kinds of Elijah terminology and of course this lasted three and a half symbolic years. We also notice that at the end of her career she was thrown into a sickbed. This is the same as the deadly wound. But the sickbed does not mean that she's out of commission forever because the book of Revelation says that her deadly wound will be healed which means that Jezebel will reign again. And if Jezebel will reign again that means that the other protagonists of the story will also come into view because Jezebel never appears alone. You have to study the entire and complete story as we find it in the Old Testament. Are you understanding the principle? Now let's talk about the Old Testament Elijah. This is the root prophecy and this is the one that we're going to look at this morning because everything else is based on the root story of the Old Testament Elijah. Now in the story of Elijah there is a threefold alliance. First of all there it is a king. He is the political ruler. In other words he can make political decrees. Secondly there is a harlot woman. This harlot woman also has false prophets that do her bidding and extend her religion. Through these false prophets she actually controls the children of Israel. God calls Elijah to denounce this apostasy, to denounce this going astray from the Lord. And Elijah of course when he preaches God's message is hated and is persecuted. His main message to Israel is come back to the Lord your Creator. Now let's analyze each one of the protagonists individually because as we study the Old Testament story we're going to see that these, the characters of these individuals actually foreshadow the characters in the case of the days of Jesus, John the Baptist, they also foreshadow the character of the individuals during the Middle Ages as well as the end time Elijah. So let's look at first the king. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 16 and verses 30 and 31. 1 Kings 30, uh, 16, 30 and 31. I want you to notice here that the king carries on an illegitimate relationship with this harlot woman Jezebel and she instigates him as the king to do her bidding. In other words Jezebel controls the king and gets the king to do what she wants. Notice once again 1 Kings 16, 30 and 31. It says there, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that he took as a wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbel king of the Sidonians and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
So here we find a king linking up with this apostate woman Jezebel, with this harlot Jezebel, as she's called in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 22. Now what kind of character did Ahab have? Was he, did he have a mind of his own? Did he do what he wanted to do? Absolutely not. He was a weakling. He was easily manipulated by the strong-willed Jezebel. Notice what we find in Prophets and Kings page 115 where Ellen White describes the character of this king, Ahab. She says, Ahab was weak in moral power. His union by marriage with an idolatrous woman of decided character and positive temperament resulted disastrously both to himself and to the nation. Then she says, unprincipled and with no high standard of right doing his character was easily molded by the determined spirit of Jezebel. In other words Jezebel manipulates the king, she uses the king and the king who has no principles, who has a weak moral character simply goes along. Does this sound like something that's going to happen in the end time? With the kings of the earth? Absolutely. Now let's look at the character of Jezebel, the harlot woman. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 22 where we find several details about this apostate woman. It says there, Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace Jehu? So he answered, What peace? As long as the harlotries, notice she's called a harlot, the harlotries of your mother, she's called the mother Jezebel, and her witchcraft are so many. So notice she was a harlot, she was involved in witchcraft, and she is called the mother. Now go with me to 1 Kings chapter 21 and verses 8 through 10 where once again we find how Jezebel uses the political power to accomplish her purposes. It's as if the king doesn't exist. He simply goes along with what she wants. It says there, and this is of course speaking about the experience of Naboth. You know Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard and uh, he bargained with him. He said, sell it to me. Naboth said no. So Jezebel says, I'll take care of it. Notice what kind of person she was. It says, and she wrote letters in Ahab's name sealed them with his seal, she's using the seal of the king, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, she's using the seal of the king, she wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels before him, to bear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king then take him out and stone him that he may die. False witness. Using the power of the king to slay everyone who was against her agenda. In fact we're clearly told in 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 25 that Jezebel enticed the king to do evil. We're told there, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So she represents a religious system that uses the political power to accomplish her purposes and the political powers with no backbone simply go 
along. Now Jezebel imposed a syncretistic religion. In other words, a religion that was a mixture between God worship and Baal worship. In 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 21 we find this indicated when Elijah speaks to Israel on Mount Carmel. Notice what he says. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But the people answered him not a word. Notice that Elijah's message at this point was fruitless. Because the people simply kept silent. But the fact that Elijah says, why do you falter between two opinions means that they were trying to serve two masters. They were attempting to serve God, but at the same time they had an infiltration of paganism. Now she imposed the worship of Baal. Who was Baal? Baal was the ancient sun god of the Phoenicians. In fact, in Hosea 2 verse 8 we're told that Baal was given creative powers. That was believed that Baal was the creator. Notice what it says in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 8. God is indicting Israel and he says, Nor did she know that I gave her, that, Israel, that is Israel, that I gave her grain, new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. They attributed creative power to Baal, the sun god. Ellen White in Testimonies for the Church, volume 3, page 282, confirms that Baal was the sun god and Israel was worshiping one who was not the creator, a false creator. She says, speaking about what the prophets of Baal did on Mount Carmel, their pleadings are mingled with cursings to their sun god notice, to their sun god that he does not send fire upon their altars. And so she's imposing the worship of the sun god. Is there any relationship between that and what happens in the end time? Yeah, you're no longer dealing with the literal sun. You're dealing in the end time with the day of the sun. And we will see that there's a clear connection in our last study tomorrow morning. Now as I mentioned, Jezebel was a murderess of everyone who did not agree with her. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 4 we are told, For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Here we find God's people hiding from the wrath of Jezebel because we're told that she massacred the prophets of the Lord. In other words, she delighted in shedding the blood of those who disagreed with her syncretistic religion. In fact, after the episode on Mount Carmel, Jezebel spoke to Elijah and she says, you're gonna die just like they did. First Kings chapter 19 verses 1 and 2, we find these words. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And so here we find this murderous woman who hates God's prophet because of the message that he has delivered. So we've studied the king. 
We've studied the characteristics of the harlot. Now let's take a look at the apostate priesthood or the apostate false prophets that did the bidding of Jezebel. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 19 we're told that Jezebel fed the false prophets and by the way you don't bite the hand that feeds you. In other words they simply did what she said. We're told there, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, here Elijah is speaking, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who what? who eat at Jezebel's table. And so basically they also do what she says. They are religious cohorts, if you please, of Jezebel to extend the religion of this apostate harlot woman. And through this triple alliance the king, Jezebel, and the false prophets, the people of Israel were deceived and controlled with the exception of a very small remnant. In fact in 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 22 we're told that, that Ahab and Jezebel actually were the ones that enticed the entire people to sin. They had control over the multitudes in other words. Here it says, I will make your house, God is predicting what's going to happen to Ahab, I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah because of the provocation with which you have provoked my anger and made who? And made Israel sin. And so this triple alliance actually makes Israel sin and they have the entire people almost with the exception of a small remnant practicing this false worship. In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 10 we are also told once again that the children of Israel were enticed by this triple alliance to be on the side of error. It says there, so he said, here's Elijah speaking, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. Notice the children of Israel have done this. And then he says, I alone am left and they, that is the children of Israel, seek to take my life. So let me ask you, did Jezebel and Ahab and the false prophets have almost full control over the people? Over the multitudes, nations, tongues and peoples? Absolutely. Now let's talk about the role of the fourth protagonist in the story, Elijah. God raises up Elijah to denounce this apostasy and to bring God's people back to the straight and narrow. You see Elijah is not an innovator. Elijah is a reformer who wants to bring Israel back to where they once were. The mission of Elijah is to call God's people who have been deceived by this triple alliance to come out of apostasy. He preaches about the true creator God and he calls Israel to come back. He's not an innovator. He is a reformer and he is a restorer. He's seeking to restore true worship. He's seeking to restore the true covenant sacrifice. He's seeking to restore the commandments of God. And interestingly enough, his message was not for the unchurched, but for the churched. You see, the message of Elijah is given to Israel. Would this perhaps mean that in the end time the Elijah message will go to an apostate Christendom? 
doesn't go to the secular. It goes to a people that claim to serve the true God. Now, the succinct message of Elijah is to bring God's people back once again to the religion that they knew when they were on God's side. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 37 we find this clear indication that Elijah is actually one who restores Israel to what they once were. Here uh, Elijah says in his prayer, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you, now listen carefully, and that you have what? Turned their hearts back to you again. He's the restorer. In other words, he's not an innovator, he's not bringing a new religion. He's saying to Israel, return to the Lord, your Creator. Now I want to read also Luke 1 verse 16. This verse is dealing with the New Testament Elijah, but the principle applies that the New Testament Elijah is also called to be a restorer. We'll study this particular verse this evening. It says in Luke 1 and verse 16, speaking about John the Baptist, the New Testament Elijah, and he will turn, listen carefully, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now wait a minute. He's going to turn who to the Lord their God? The children of Israel. So had the children of Israel gone astray from the Lord their God? Absolutely. This is a message for Israel. It's a message for those who profess to be God's people. It's not a message for atheists and for secular people, people that profess no religion. It's a message for people who belong to God's church. In Matthew chapter 17 verse 11, once again speaking about the New Testament Elijah, but the New Testament Elijah is connected with the Old Testament one. We are told about Elijah, indeed, Elijah is coming first, and listen carefully, and will restore all things. What, it, what does it mean to restore? Can you restore something that has not existed before? No! Elijah is the great restorer of God's truth, of God's message, of worship to the Creator, of the commandments of God, of the true covenant sacrifice. In fact, we're clearly told in several texts that Israel had broken the covenant and they had gone astray from the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 30 we're told that the altar was in ruins which means that they had forgotten how to worship the Lord. It says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He's restoring true worship, in other words. Now, the twelve, this altar was composed of twelve stones, which means that he's restoring God's Israel because Israel had twelve tribes. First Kings chapter 18 and verses 31 and 32. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He's restoring God's people and he's restoring true worship. And in his prayer he invokes Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because they are the fathers, the founding fathers of Israel. Notice 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 36 and 37. This is on Mount Carmel. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. 
and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have, listen carefully now, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So he's restoring God's people. He's restoring true worship. In 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 17 and 18 we're also told that he's restoring the commandments of God. It says there and here uh, of course uh, Elijah uh, meets with Ahab and Ahab says, oh you're the troubler of Israel. Notice what Elijah has to say. 1 Kings 18, 17 and 18 Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel but you and your father's house have in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Did Elijah have a role in restoring the commandments of God? Yes he did. Did he have a role in establishing true worship? Yes he did. Did he have a role in reestablishing the true gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ represented by the covenant sacrifice? Absolutely. And he rebuked Jezebel for imposing the worship of the sun god Baal as the creator instead of the Lord. Now go with me to Psalm 95 and verse 6 and let's notice something very interesting. Can you separate worship from the Sabbath? Can you separate the Sabbath from worship? Absolutely not. Notice Psalm 95 and verse 6. Here the psalmist says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Why do we worship God? Because God is our what? God is our Creator. And let me ask you, did God give us a sign to remind us that He is the Creator? Absolutely. What is the sign? The sign is the Sabbath. This is a reason why in the end time, and I'll get ahead of myself a little bit, we're told in the first angel's message that God's people, God's end time Elijah, will bring people back to worshiping the Creator God. It says there in Revelation 14, 6 and 7, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. A clear allusion to the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20. God's end time Elijah will call people back to the worship of the Creator and of His day which is the Sabbath in contrast with the day of the sun. Now because of the apostasy in the days of Elijah there were terrible calamities that overtook the nation of Israel. There was a famine. First Kings chapter 18 and verse 5 we are told and Ahab had said to Obadiah go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any livestock. The drought was terrible. The famine was terrible and it was because of the apostasy. And yet who was blamed? Elijah was blamed. In 2nd Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 which we read in our presentation last evening we're told why rain would not fall in Israel. 
Here God says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, I'm almost tempted to say tornadoes. If my people, notice it's talking about His people, it's not the secular people. If my people who are called by my name, see they claim His name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But those who were guilty refused to recognize that they were at fault and so they blamed the prophet Elijah. In fact in 1 Kings 18-17 when Elijah finally goes before Ahab we read this before then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him is that you O troubler of Israel? In Prophets and Kings page 126 we find Ellen White's comment about this uh, persecution against Elijah and the fact that Elijah was blamed by this triple alliance. She says Jezebel utterly refused to recognize the drought as a judgment from Jehovah unyielding in her determination to defy the God of heaven. She with nearly the whole of Israel united in denouncing Elijah as the cause of all their misery. Had he not borne testimony against their forms of worship? If only he could be put out of the way, she argued, the anger of their gods would be appeased and their troubles would end. And so Elijah is persecuted because the Triple Alliance tells the people he is to blame for all of our calamities. Does this ring a bell when it comes to the end time? Absolutely. This is the foundation. 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 10 we're told as the Lord your God lives there is no nation or kingdom where my master this is when a servant of the king meets with Elijah there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you and when they said he is not here he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you in other words that was so serious that when uh, when the messenger went to a certain city or a certain nation he would ask have you seen Elijah they had to swear with an oath that they had not seen Elijah in other words he was sought in every nation in every place Prophets and Kings page 137 we find these words for three years the messenger of woe was sought for in city after city and nation after nation. At the mandate of Ahab many rulers had given their oath of honor that, he, that the strange prophet could not be found in their dominions. Yet the search was continued for Jezebel and the prophets of Baal hated Elijah with deadly hatred and they spared no effort to bring him within reach of their power and still there was no rain. So where did Elijah have to flee? Elijah had to flee to the wilderness. Did God have a place prepared for Elijah in the wilderness? Yes. In fact God commanded Elijah go to the brook Kishon I have a place prepared there for you. And we're told that not only did God prepare a place for Elijah to find refuge from the wrath of this triple alliance, but we are also told that God fed his prophet there. His waters were sure and his bread was sure there where he was hiding from the wrath of this triple alliance. Let me ask you, was Elijah whisked out of the world 
so that he would not experience the tribulation? Absolutely not. Elijah was here during this period of tribulation. He had to flee. He had to hide. Yet he was sustained by the Lord. In other words, he was not saved from experiencing tribulation. He was saved in the midst of tribulation. He was not whisked away to some other place so that things would be easy for him. Now up to this point, the message of Elijah had not experienced any response, any positive response from the people. We're told that on Mount Carmel when Elijah said, If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. The people answered him not a word. There was a ne it was necessary to have a powerful manifestation of God's power from heaven in order for Elijah's message to have an impact and convert the people. In 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 21 we find these words, And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Not until the fire comes down from heaven will people be convicted. In Prophets and Kings, page 147, Ellen White remarks about this experience. Facing King Ahab and the false prophets, and surrounded by the assemble, assembled hosts of Israel, Elijah stands, the only one who has appeared to vindicate the honor of Jehovah. He whom the whole kingdom has charged with its weight of woe is now before them, apparently defenseless in the presence of the monarch of Israel, the prophets of Baal, the men of war, and the surrounding thousands. But Elijah is not alone. Above and around him are the protecting hosts of heaven, angels that excel in strength. Now we don't have time to get into this, but what was the worship style of the prophets of Baal like? <laughs> they shouted, they jumped, they rolled, and they even came to the point of cutting themselves in order to invoke the blessing of their God, Baal. But there was no answer from heaven. What is it that finally brought conviction to God's people and brought them back to the Lord? Folks, it was the fire from heaven. Notice 1 Kings chapter 18 and verses 38 and 39. 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 38 and 39 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench, probably a hole as big as the one that you find in Arizona. <laughs> that meteorite that supposedly fell millions and millions of years ago, which we know that is, isn't true. The power could not, be, could not be denied. And so notice the response, verse 39, Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. In Prophets and Kings, pages 152 and 153, we find the inspired commentary of what happened there on Mount Carmel. No sooner is the prayer of Elijah ended, then flames of fire, like brilliant flashes of lightning, descend from heaven upon the unprepared, uh, upreared altar, consuming the sacrifice, licking up the water in the trench, and consuming even the stones of the altar. The brilliancy of the blaze, because this is at the hour of the evening sacrifice, folks. Right around sundown, 
The brilliancy of the blaze illumines the mountain and dazzles the eyes of the multitude. In the valleys below where many are watching in anxious suspense the movements of those above, the descent of fire is clearly seen and all are amazed at the sight. It resembles the pillar of fire which at the Red Sea separated the children of Israel from the Egyptian hosts. What does fire represent in scripture? Fire represents the Holy Spirit. The descent of fire on the day of Pentecost was a sign that God had accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so the fire that consumed the sacrifice that came and, and gave a boost to the message of Elijah and brought conviction was the fire from heaven. Is there going to be a message from heaven in the book of Revelation that will illumine the whole earth with the glory of the Lord? Revelation chapter 18 verses 1 through 4 that will be our subject of study tomorrow we will look at Elijah and his three enemies the dragon, the beast and the false prophet they play the same role as the personages in the Old Testament now we need to talk for a brief few moments about the end of Jezebel, Ahab and the prophets of Baal 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 40 we find that after God revealed His power from heaven, the, the priests of Baal still insisted that they were not going to accept. It's amazing how hardened they were. In 1 Kings 18 verse 40, we're told that the very people that admired them most were the ones that arose for their destruction. There it says, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they, that is the children of Israel, seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Prophets and Kings 153 and 154 we find this amazing commentary about this experience. The priests of Baal witnessed with consternation the wonderful revelation of Jehovah's power. Yet even in their discomfiture and in the presence of divine glory they refused to repent of their evil doing. Does this sound like what's going to happen to the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet? They did not repent of their deeds, we are told in scripture. She says they would still remain the prophets of Baal. Thus they showed themselves ripe for destruction. In other words, they committed the unpardonable sin. That repentant Israel may be protected from the allurements of those who have had have taught them to worship Baal, Elijah is directed by the Lord to destroy these false teachers. Now notice who destroys them, because we're going to come back to this tomorrow. The anger of the people has already been aroused against the leaders in transgression. And when Elijah gives the command, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, they are ready to obey. They seize the priests and they take them to the brook Kishon and there before the close of the day that marked the beginning of decided reform the ministers of Baal are slain not one of them is permitted to live the swords that were to destroy Elijah are used by the very people that were deceived to destroy the prophets of Baal now what was the end of Ahab and Jezebel like? well the fact is in 1st Kings chapter 21 in verses 23 and 24 God predicted the end of Jezebel 1st Kings 21 verses 23 and 24 and concerning Jezebel the Lord also spoke saying the dogs shall eat Jezebel do we find anything in Revelation about the beasts of the field coming to eat uh, individuals? absolutely 
it's coming from this story of Elijah the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field the beasts of the field and the birds of the air what was the end of Ahab like? 1 Kings 22, 37 and 38 says so the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria then someone washed the chariot at a pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood while the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken dogs licked up the blood of Ahab what about Jezebel's end? we saw predicted that the dogs were eat her flesh 2nd Kings 9, 8 and 9 tells us the story it says for the whole house of Ahab shall perish and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel both bond and free so I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah the dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of the ground of Jezreel and there shall be none to bury her and he opened the door and fled and in 1st Kings, 2nd Kings chapter 9 30 and 31 we find the sad end it says now when Jehu had come to Jezreel Jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head she said I'm going to continue enticing the king by my beauty she's dressing herself as a harlot but what she doesn't know is that her influence on the king is over and so it says she looks through the window then as Jehu entered at the gate she said is it peace Zimri murderer of your master and he looked up at the window and said who is on my side? who? so two or three eunuchs looked out at him then he said throw her down so, he, so they threw her down notice uh, the woman has a fall right? so in Revelation do you have the fall of Babylon? absolutely so they threw her down and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses notice he's trampled by the horses and he trampled her underfoot and when he had gone in he ate and drank then he said go now see to this accursed woman and bury her for she was a king's daughter so they went to bury her but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands therefore they came back and told him and he said this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite saying on the plot of the ground at Jezreel dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel so that they shall not say here lies Jezebel all of this is actually a prefiguring of what we find in Revelation as we will study in our topic tomorrow so was the blood of God's people avenged? yes 2nd Kings 9 verse 7 says you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel that's almost and a precise quotation that is found in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6 speaking about the wrath of the end time harlot but the story doesn't end there after the trial Elijah sees this cloud this cloud that's coming there's a chariot coming there's a chariot coming to take him home and Elijah is translated after his trial 
after his strife with this threefold alliance, Elijah is translated to heaven in a chariot of fire. In 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 we find these words, Then it happened as they, that is Elijah and Elisha, continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. Do you know that in the great controversy Ellen White describes how God's people will be translated after they go through the end time trial and face this threefold alliance. She describes a chariot that has wings. Of course the wings are the wings of angels. And in the midst of the chariot is fire because angels are compared with fire. In fact the word saraf or seraphim comes from means fire. And so Elijah after his trial, after the death decree, after having to flee, after having to hide, facing the wrath of the threefold alliance, after preaching with power and having the, the, the power united with the fire from heaven and bringing conviction to God's people, he is translated to heaven from among the living. Is this what is going to happen with God's people? Absolutely. Brings to mind that famous Negro spiritual. See, the person who wrote this had it straight. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And then the next stanza says, I looked over Jordan. And of course Elijah and Elisha were there at Jordan. I looked over Jordan and what did I see? Coming for to carry me home. What did he see? A band of angels coming after me coming for to carry me home. Amen. Folks, there's a trial ahead. The final movements, Ellen White said, would be rapid ones. We are seeing those rapid movements now. Amen. It is time for God's people to awaken and to proclaim the message with power, but for that we have to have the commitment of Elijah. A total and complete commitment to the Lord. Not even consider our life important but consider that sharing God's present truth message with, with the church and with the world is of prime importance. And like Elijah, we have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.